you know, I'd been a barrister, I'd written opinions, and I got paid for my opinions. Then I went to be a student to study theology at Oxford. I wrote essays, and not only was no one paying me, you know, they were criticizing my essays. And I realized how much of my self-esteem was tied up with what I did. It came from being a barrister, being paid for what I did. And someone said to me, the local vicar who I was training under, said to me, you know, it's a really important thing because what matters in life is not what you do, but who you are. And that's where your self-esteem should come from, is from who you are. And I think that was a really important lesson to learn, that that's ultimately what matters. And yeah, that's why I always try to stress that the New Testament tells us what Jesus is that we're loved. And to know that you are a much loved human being, that you're a child of God, that's where our esteem should come from. That's where our confidence should come from not from what we do. And that's always a, a battle because it's always tempting to rely on you know, what we do or success or whatever. Whereas actually, none of those things matter. What matter is that you're a child of God. You're a much loved child of God. And that's where our confidence should come from. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 43 of the So This Is My Wife podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya. And firstly, happy Easter 2021. In conjunction with Easter, I'm so pleased to introduce today's guest, Nikki Gumbel, the vicar of Holy Trinity Bronze in London and pioneer of the Alpha Course, where over 25 million people around the world have gathered to explore the meaning of life. But Nikki wasn't always in ministry. In fact, he grew up being an argumentative atheist going so far as to label himself a logical determinist and writing an essay disproving the existence of God, then studying existentialism while at Cambridge University, where he decided to pick up the Bible, which is when he encountered Jesus. From then on, Nikki was on fire for God, and he shares what it's like, how he came to be at Holy Trinity Brompton, why he went to study theology, where he learned that up to that point, he had been tying his self-esteem to his work and his journey with the Alpha Course, pivoting it from being a course aimed at Christians to those who don't believe in God but want to learn more. Want to learn more about Nikki's incredible faith journey? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. Hi, Nikki. Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. It's so exciting to have you with me today. It's a privilege to be with you. I'm absolutely delighted. You were born in Hyde Park Corner in London in 1955. And your mother. Yeah, that's good knowledge. <laughs> Hyde Park Corner, that's a very accurate um, locating. And your mother, Muriel Margaret Gumbel, was a barrister. And I believe you were born on the day she won her seat as the member of the London Counties Council. Wow, you really have done your research. So she was there. And I think because of her political inclination, she was later in the Kensington Chelsea Council. So that's why you got to know Caroline Welby. So that's where yes. all that link started. Yes. And then you've got your father, who's Walter Gumbel. He came from a long line of barristers. So it sounds like they had high expectations from you from day one. Well, I don't know. They, they, my father definitely <laughs> expected me to be a barrister. I don't know whether he had high expectations of me, but he definitely expected me to be a barrister. 
My parents were amazing. They were a little bit eccentric. My father was 49 when he got married and my mother was 36. So in some ways, they were a bit more like grandparents. I mean, by the time I was 49... I think I probably almost had grandchildren by that stage. But my father came as a refugee, so he had nothing really when he arrived here. My grandparents were pretty much the last to escape on the kind of last, last, last exits from fleeing from the Nazis. So they came with nothing and they sacrificed everything for us. So they were very loving parents. They worked very hard. We never had anything other than secondhand clothes. I do a podcast with my daughter called Faith and Equality. On the podcast, we interviewed my sister, who's now a QC, and she reminded us that one time someone gave her a piece of clothing from Marks and Spencers for her birthday. And my mother took it back because she knew she could get a refund from Marks and Spencers. So we never had, we got all our clothes in charity shops and we used to go and buy damaged fruit from the markets, but they saved every penny to educate us and to give us the best possible start in life. So I am hugely, hugely grateful to them. And I believe in 1969, when you were age 14, you and your sister were walking with your mom along the promenade in Brighton. You had this eventful conversation. Could you share a bit about that? Yeah, yeah. My mother said to us, your father is German and Jewish and you are never to speak to him about it. So that would have been in 1969, and he died in 1981, and I never spoke to him about it. He never spoke, and I didn't really speak to my mother either. She died in 1986. I felt sort of she, out of respect for him, didn't want to talk about it. So I only really talked a little bit to his sister. My father's sister was 10 years younger, and I did find out a little bit about him from her. And then the Judaica Museum in Berlin wrote and they were researching my family and I got a file from them. And then the Israeli ambassador did some research into which concentration camps members of my family had died. And now I can Google them. Um, and there's a stuff in Wikipedia that was only in German, but now it's been translated into English much of it. And I can find out more about them, about Abraham Gumbel, my great, great, great grandfather, Moses Gumbel, um, Isaac Gumbel, and even books. I've got books now written. I've got here. So this is, for example, this is my father's cousin, Emil Gumbel, who was a pacifist and professor. And Einstein rescued him after he escaped from Germany into France. He was on Hitler's hit list, him and Einstein and Kafka and various others. There were 32 of them, I think, on well, Hitler's initial hit list, the people he wanted to kill. And Emil Gumbel escaped, and Einstein got him out from France then to the US, where he came up with something called the Gumbel distribution. And if you study maths at university, you will study the Gumbel distribution. So, yeah, it, it's fascinating now to find out it's a whole new world to me. And it's only really, I mean, I read that book in the last year. So I'm now discovering stuff about this extraordinary family who were in Germany in the 1930s, resisting Hitler before he came to power. Did it never cross your mind when your mom said, don't ask your dad to maybe push the folder a bit? You couldn't get anywhere near it. So any conversation that was getting anywhere near it, you know, like, Anything to do with his education, he would immediately turn the subject to the weather. He would say, it's such a sunny day today, or isn't it cold today? That was always his defense to talk about the weather. And you knew if he was talking about the weather, he was saying, I'm not going there. So we never got anywhere near 
any conversation about his past life. And, you know, I didn't understand it at the time. I just accepted it, but I didn't understand it. But now I do understand it because the trauma that they had been through was so huge. He was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. The way I sort of try to understand it is six million Jews were murdered in the Holocaust, including many of his family. And presumably, I don't know this because I never got the opportunity to ask him, loads of friends of his must have died. And it's like, I suppose it'd be the equivalent of if in the UK, all the Christians were killed, basically, but not just killed, killed in the most inhumane way, you know, starved to death and then put into gas chambers. All the Christians, including many members of my family. And then my children would say to me, oh, how was it? You know, uh, you just, how do you begin to talk about it? And for many of the survivors of that, they started to talk about it in like 2010. So like it was like 75 years later, some of them started to say, now I feel I can talk. And I think my father died too early. It was only 36 years after the end of the war that he died. It was too fresh in his memory. He hadn't recovered from it. It was too traumatic, too painful. So the older I've got, the more I respect my father and his wisdom um, and things he used to say that now I, I say to my children and grandchildren. But I was sad because the more I learn about him, the more interesting it would have been. I mean, I, I was able to get hold of his war record. He joined the army as a private in 1942. And he was a lieutenant colonel by the end of the war. And I think he was interrogating Nazi officers. And it would have been so interesting to find out what he learned. I mean, it was just, he had such a fascinating life. And, you know, I think he did know Einstein. I, you know, I'd love to have known about Albert Einstein. What was he, you know, people he knew, but he couldn't talk about them because the moment he talked, it would have revealed something about his past life. He basically, when he got married, he just said, that is it. You know, I'm, my life starts again. Everything before is the past and the past is a place I'm not going to visit. But he clearly cared so much about you and your sister and wants to make sure you had the best of everything because you end up going yes. to Eton. Well, yeah, well, he, I mean, he wanted the best for us and he saved up. He wanted me to be a barrister. He didn't want my sister to be a barrister, although... <laughs> You know, he had married a barrister. My mother was a barrister. He didn't want my sister to be a barrister, which is extraordinary. But she was determined to be a barrister. And she is a highly successful QC now. But she had a, a real struggle because it was a very sexist world that she grew up with and a huge discrimination against women. And it was very hard for her to succeed. But she was so determined that she did and has succeeded far beyond my father's success, certainly as a barrister, and far beyond, on, I think, anything any of us could have imagined. She's right at the top of the legal profession now, massively successful and absolutely wonderful and just an amazing, amazing person. I heard that podcast episode you mentioned between you, I, sister, and Bax, I and I was amazed that she has done 10 marathons recently. Yes, Incredible. Yes, between October and Christmas, she ran 10 marathons. She wanted to run 10 marathons in 10 days, but her husband said, I, I don't think that's a good idea. So she did it in three months instead. So you had your childhood in London, then you end up going to Eton. You were there when you end up labeling yourself as a logical determinist. How did that happen? I think I just, you know, I, 
my father was an agnostic. I didn't have a church going upbringing. I just thought none of us have any control over the situation into which we're born. None of us have control over the brain that the mind we're born with. Our first action comes out of those and everything else comes out of what's happened to us. So everything is determined that you have no control. Therefore, you have no free will. There can't be any such thing as right and wrong. Therefore, there can't be any, a moral universe. Therefore, there can't be a God. And that was basically my argument. And I became convinced of that and quite sort of thought that no one had an answer to that. So I just thought Christians were just not facing the logic of the universe as it is. So I imagine you encompassed all that into this essay you wrote, disproving the existence of God. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I put all that down. (laughs) Since your dad was so determined that you would be a barrister, and I think the day you were born, your dad spoke to his friend and said, reserve a place for my son. So how did you get away with entering Cambridge for an economics degree and not law? I think I was just very blessed to get into Cambridge. I don't think I deserved to get in at all, but I got in. And the reason I did economics was because the first year of economics at Cambridge was the same as the A-level syllabus. So I knew I would have to do no work at all for the first year, which I did. I literally did zero work for an entire year. And I partied. I just basically partied in London. And it was just such a waste of the time at Cambridge because I was partying in London while I was supposed to be an undergraduate in Cambridge. And then in February 1974, you know, I encountered Jesus and that totally changed. I had a pile of invitations like that to parties in London and I literally, I just binned them. And then I just focused on finding out, reading the Bible, discovering more about Jesus and, and trying to tell my friends that this is the best news you could ever hear. Before February, I think you found your band of brotherhoods, if you were the five Nikki's and you had your Nikki lunches. How did the five of you find each other? It seems like such an incredible coincidence. Well, four of us had been at school together. So we knew each other and were friends. These overlap. So four of us were at Trinity. One was at Queen's and we just became friends. And we were, I don't know, we just thought it was funny that we were all called Nikki. And we had a couple of honorary Nikki's. Anthony got on and Ken Costa was sort of became later honorary Nikki's and they were sort of part of it. And we found some young women who were also called Nikki and they came as well. And we, and we had a lot of fun. We were just sort of very sort of irresponsible, um, I don't know, irresponsible, but we didn't have any responsibilities. We were carefree and we were having fun. I think one of the honorary Nikki's was Justin Welby. Justin Welby was pretty much, yes. Justin was the next generation. He was one year younger and he came to Trinity as well the following year. Yes. And it has been a, a wonderful friend ever since. Yes. And so you mentioned February 1974. Can you share what happened? Well, it was through and Nikki and Silla Lee were my closest friends, really. And Nikki, we'd ended up by coincidence having rooms next door to each other, or God incidents, maybe looking back at it, next door to each other. And we were great friends. We did lots of stuff together. But I didn't know that he was investigating Christianity. He knew how hostile I was, and he kept it quiet from me. But he had been investigating really for about six months, faith, but he hadn't said anything to me. He and Scylla plucked up courage to tell me that they had become Christians. And I really was horrified. But I thought I ought to find out about it. I didn't really know much about it. And that's when I picked up an old Bible I'd had at school for RE. And it was reading the New Testament, really, reading about Jesus. 
that it was like as I read about Jesus, it was as if he kind of emerged from the pages and I encountered him. And that was a life-changing moment. I knew Jesus was real. I struggled with how can it be true? Because logically it can't be true. And I sort of had to think, well, I'm just going to take this step of faith, even though I sort of I haven't got any answer to my philosophical belief system that tells me there can't be a God. But I, I sort of thought, well, I just said yes to Jesus, basically. That was, it wasn't a formal prayer. It was just like, yes, okay. And at that moment, I experienced, I suppose, like all the things that deep down I'd been hungry for were filled. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. And it was like, there was a spiritual hunger that I'd never realized was there even, that was satisfied. And I think a lot of the things I've been doing before was trying to fill that spiritual hunger with things that never worked, all that parting, and it didn't really satisfy all the sort of very superficial relationships that I had before. It was a very superficial life with hindsight, and it didn't fill the gap. I mean, it was fun in, in a way, but it was quite empty. And I think the moment I encountered Jesus, it was like, Jesus is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. This is what life is about. I think I want to dig a little bit deeper because for someone who's never heard of this before, they would think, well, you've spent your whole life arguing against the existence of God. Then you spend two days reading this Bible that you've had and has been gathering dust on the shelf. And you suddenly have this 180 degree shift. So was it an yeah. emotional change? I think you were studying existentialism as well. You've done your research. You really have. Amazing. Um, I was reading a bit of Jean-Paul Sartre at the time. Yeah, I suppose it was extraordinary. I mean, it was, I suppose, I mean, I haven't thought of it like this, but if you think Paul was off to persecute Christians on the road to Damascus, it didn't even take two days. Um, it was like immediate. And I think for me, it was a bit like that. It was as if Jesus sort of, he didn't physically appear to me like he appeared to Paul, but it was sort of in my heart, he did. At the moment I said, yes, I didn't know it was true. But a, a few seconds afterwards, I did. It was kind of like, I knew it was true. And an analogy I sometimes use is I did this case once at Knightsbridge Crown Court. I prosecuted a man who was accused of stealing jewellery from Harvey Nichols. And the only evidence against him was his fingerprints. And now fingerprints, no two human beings have the same fingerprints. Even twins don't have the same fingerprints. So normally, if you find someone's fingerprints, they plead guilty. But he didn't plead guilty because he said, yes, I was in Harvey Nichols with my girlfriend. We went to the jewellery store and I was looking at jewellery and that's why my fingerprints were there. And I didn't know whether the jury could have believed that. They had to take a step of faith. They weren't there based on the evidence of his fingerprints. And they actually did convict him. They found him guilty. After he was found guilty, the police officer got into the dock to give his previous convictions, because you're not allowed to tell them, or you weren't then allowed to tell people about previous convictions. He had a page and a half of previous convictions for stealing jewellery from department stores, and he was awaiting trial for two further cases of stealing jewellery from department stores. And you could see the jury's face. They took a step of faith based on the evidence. But when they heard that, they knew they were right. And for me, it was like before, it was like a step of faith based on the evidence. But the moment I made that decision, it was like I knew. Um, it was the confirmation, the spirit, I guess, gave a confirmation that Jesus is real. It is true. So once you took that step of faith and 
you sound like you were so on fire for God. I imagine the first thing you must have done was try and find other people who were also on fire for God. So yes. how did you build that community and how do you end up in kitchen with Phil Lawson Johnston? <laughs> so, yes, I suppose. No, I mean, the first thing I wanted to do was to tell all my friends, like, it's true. But by the way, guys, you know, I'm the I'm the atheist. It's true. And, you know, quite a few people at that time did become Christians, not necessarily through me, but through what was happening. But a lot of them didn't. Funnily enough, now they have much, and some of them were very dismissive. You know, they thought this is a phase, God squad, all that. They're much more respectful now, like 47 years later. <laughs> um, well, they know it's not a phase. It's not just a fasting phase. If it is a phase, it's a very long phase. But yes, there was a mixed reaction. How did I end up at the kitchen? So I started going when I left university. I started looking for sort of churches to go to. And during that time, it was in 1976, this place had opened in Petersham Place, which is not far from where my parents live, not far from where we are now, actually, here at HGB. And it was started by seven people, including Phil Lawson Johnson. And it was in the house of a, of a guy called Mickey Cawthor, Mickey Anstrother Goth Cawthor. And it was seven people. I think all of whom, Mickey sadly died, but the others are still alive and are still all around. And basically what Mickey did is he had a garage in his house in Peterson Place, and it was a muse house. And he turned the garage into a restaurant. And it was a place where people could go and just eat. And you, you didn't have to pay. There was a basket. You could give a contribution. And there was a book and you signed your name in that book. And I went one evening to eat there and I looked in the book and the first name in the book was Philippa Hislop which was Pippa's maiden name and she was the first guest there she hadn't been a Christian but it was designed for people who weren't Christians to go in and eat there and meet the people and become friends and they would have a service on Sundays in the garage I just like 30 people gathering to worship and so yeah that was the kitchen and what was it like? Because it sounded like it was very spirit-filled to the point where Sandy Miller popped in. Sandy had just come as the curate to HTB, and HTB was not a church I thought of joining, although it was literally, I guess, 300 yards from my parents' house. But I wouldn't have thought of going to it because it was not one which had a reputation for life, spiritual life. But Sandy had arrived there, and I went to a service to meet him because I heard he had been a barrister. And I was planning to be a barrister at that stage. So I met him after the service and he asked me to, well, basically, he asked me to everything, basically, because I think I was the first young person to come to the church. And there was no one else in the church at Brompton Road who was under 50. And I think he's, you know, when he saw a young person arrive, he asked me to lunch, tea, supper. And he started a small group with six people, including Caroline Eaton. She was then, now Caroline Welby. And that's when I first met Caroline. And that little group grew. After about three months, Nikki and Silla Lee, who'd been at another church, came and joined us. And then various others came who'd been at Cambridge, came and joined. And that group grew and grew. And then it divided. Nikki and Silla took a group from it and started their own group. And then eventually, quite a bit later, Pippa and I took a group from there and started our own little group. But that group grew and grew. It's a midweek group. But then Sandy persuaded Phil who had been at the kitchen, to come and start leading worship at HTB. And there'd never been that kind of informal guitar-led worship 
before. And that started to make a difference. And then he started an evening service with Phil leading worship. So what was happening at the kitchen then kind of switched away from the kitchen to Brompton Road. And that was the start of a movement which just grew and grew and is still growing, I think. I imagine he must have been quite a shock when Phil joins. I mean, Phil, I saw an interview he did once. He described it as one of the very first contemporary Christian worship yeah. moments. And you contrast that with what HGB had at the time, which was roped choir services in the yeah. morning. So the reaction must have been quite extreme at the time to have. Yeah. yeah. There was no other Church of England church doing what Sandy was doing. So it was unique, I think. I, I may be wrong, but I think there was nothing else in 1976 quite like it. It's still going on, but the change is still happening. But it was the start of something, informality. What Sandy realised was that the culture was informal. He would always say, when he was young, he would come down to Sunday lunch wearing a suit and tie. And he said, you know, his children don't do that anymore. The culture has changed. Look at me, I'm not wearing a suit. I'm not wearing I don't think I've ever seen you in a suit. (laughs) No. Well, because it's an informal culture. And what Sandy was saying is if the church is going to be relevant to an informal culture, we have to be relevant to that culture. And therefore, we have to adapt the way that we do church, the informality. And that was why he got rid of the rogue choir. He didn't get rid. I mean, the rogue choir were paid and all they did was stop paying them. That was the only thing he did. They could have still sung. A couple of them kept on coming, but he just stopped paying people to lead worship in that sense. The fact is they wouldn't have come if they hadn't been paid. I remember it so well. They would sit when they'd done their singing, they'd get a book out and sit in the choir stalls reading their book. They weren't interested in church. They were just interested in being paid for singing. When they went, that changed the atmosphere. But that was a lot later. That was much later. So you were really active in church. And after you graduated, did you not so you wanted to go into ministry full-time immediately? I did. In 1976, I thought about it. Funny enough, I came across a prayer diary yesterday. In 1976, I did think about it straight away, but it just didn't work out. I saw the bishop and he wasn't interested. You know, he basically kind of just didn't encourage me in any way. So then I that door sort of shut. So I went off and trained to be a barrister. And then I, was, I did almost 10 years law from when I started law at university to when I left. How did you go from doing tax to criminal to a mixed set? That's you really, very you've different. You've done your research so well. So my father put me down for tax chambers because he thought that would be the only kind of law that would survive. In many ways, he was right. Tax is a very good part of the bar to be involved in. But it didn't involve being in court at all, really. Or very little court work when you're a tax lawyer. Most of it is in chambers advising. I mean, I did find it interesting because I quite sort of, I like math. But Sandy had been in criminal chambers. And I was at that stage, anything Sandy had done, I wanted to do. So I went, and my father didn't really approve of crime. You know, not the, the criminal bar is not really looked up to by those who are He was in the commercial bar. Actually, he was in One Brick Court, which is the top commercial set. And I think had aspirations for me doing, you know, that kind of thing, not crime. But I liked it. Crime is really interesting when you start because you get to be in court. You get to meet some interesting characters. You get to go into prisons. And, you know, it's just really interesting. I was 21, 22. I found it fascinating and I really enjoyed it. I was very tempted to stay at the bar because I was having such a good time. 1981 was a significant moment for you as well, because you met John Wimber. 
I've always said it's 1981. I, maybe I don't know what the date was. I think we now know what the date was. I keep forgetting whether it's 1981 or 1982. I have a feeling it may have been 1982. But anyway, John Wimber had a very big impact on the church because he was informal. He was Californian. He was very into informal worship, ministry of the spirit. I think that prayer, come Holy Spirit, first time we sort of heard someone pray that and expect the Holy Spirit to come was with John Wimber. It was come Holy Spirit inspired by him? Because I don't know if you know this, when I was in HTV worship team, we would gather at the back waiting for that cue to come on and they would say, wait for Nikki to say, come Holy Spirit, because it's so distinctive. Yeah, Veni Spiritu Sancto is, is a, the sort of an ancient prayer of the church. If you look at the Catholic liturgies, the Anglican liturgies, it's there everywhere. But as Father Raniero Cantalamessa, now Cardinal Raniero Cantalamessa always says, it's very often it's prayed with no expectation that the Holy Spirit will come. It's just a sort of formality. Now, this is the moment we pray, come Holy Spirit. But John Wimber prayed it with an expectation that the Spirit would come. And the Holy Spirit does come when we pray it with an expectation that he'll come. What was it like when he prayed for you? I mean, I had a powerful experience of the Spirit when he first came. And I think a lot of people did. And I think it was just experiencing the power of God in a way in a physical way. And John Wimber said at that point, God is giving that man the gift of evangelism. And I didn't really take a huge amount of notice of it. And I didn't suddenly become, you know, suddenly people leading people to Jesus or anything. But I think looking back, it was a significant moment. What was the push then for you to decide to go to Oxford and study theology? Well, I think I, I sensed a call in a number of different ways. I think Sometimes I would read the Bible and be like, how will they hear without a preacher? And I always wanted people to know. And while I enjoyed being a barrister enormously and found it very fulfilling and was aware that there was nothing wrong with being a Christian barrister, I think what I really enjoyed was what I was doing in my spare time, which was studying the Bible, telling people about Jesus, running small groups. That was what I enjoyed, or that's where I felt most fulfillment. So although for me, being a barrister was very good training because I was shy and I had no experience of speaking. You know, I, I would shake every time I got up to speak in court, even if there was no one in the courtroom apart from me and the magistrate. It was good training because I had to learn to try and articulate and to, to argue a case, basically. So I guess as I read the Bible, as I prayed, Pippa and I would go off and pray and we'd write down the reasons why we sensed God was calling us. And um, I still got the piece of paper where we wrote down all the reasons and all the reasons against. And then we talked to friends, you know, we talked to the Lees, to Sandy, others, advisors, everyone seemed to think it was a good idea. And then we pushed the door and the door opened. And when you went to study theology, I believe you learned as well a lot about your self-worth and how you had tied it previously to your job. Yeah, yeah, you really have done good research. You know, I've been a barrister, I'd written opinions, and I got paid for my opinions. Then I went to be a student to study theology at Oxford. I wrote essays, and not only was no one paying me, you know, they were criticising my essays. And I realised how much of my self-esteem was tied up with what I did. It came from being a barrister, being paid for what I did. And someone said to me, the local vicar who I was training under, said to me, you know, it's a really important thing because... What matters in life is not what you do, but who you are. And that's where your self-esteem should come from, is from who you are. And I think that was a really important lesson to learn, that that's ultimately what matters. And yeah, that's why 
I always try to stress that the New Testament tells us what Jesus is that we're loved. And to know that you are a much loved human being, that you're a child of God, that's where our esteem should come from. That's where our confidence should come from, not from what we do. And that's always a, a battle because it's always tempting to rely on, you know, what we do or success or whatever. Whereas actually, None of those things matter. What matter is that you're a child of God. You're a much loved child of God. And that's where our confidence should come from. Do you feel that that confidence was shaken because after theology, you applied to nine parishes and you couldn't get yes. in? <laughs> what <laughs> yeah. were you going to do? <laughs> yeah, I, would, I was thinking then of going back to being barrister, but that would have been really hard. And I ended up, I think I only went along two or three times, but claiming unemployment benefit. And that was really demoralizing but then sandy invited me to come and be and i didn't there was no place at htb at that time so it was a kind of miracle that he was able to offer me a place and that made all the difference and you end up spending 19 years as sandy's curate 19 years as his curate wonderful wonderful years huge privilege and you said that you had even then such a heart for evangelism and you were part of this thing called the agnostics anonymous course i've never heard of it uh, before no well i wasn't a part of it but it was so at htb in the 1980s there were two courses running i mean there were lots of courses probably but there was a course for new christians called alpha and a course for non-christians called agnostic i can't remember it may have, it was called something like agnostics anonymous so when i took on alpha in october 1990 There were about 100 people on Alpha and about 10 people on Agnostics Anonymous. It was very rare that anyone became a Christian through Agnostics Anonymous. But in the course that started in January 1991, we found a lot of people who were not Christians were coming and coming to faith through Alpha. And that's when I realized that we could change the course or adapt the course and make it a course for people who are not Christians. I believe under Alpha, your first small group, you invited all your friends. None of them were Christian and they all became Christians at the end of the course. No, they weren't people I knew. They were people who'd come to a carol service, not at my invitation, but at the invitation of others. And they were remarkable. They are now friends. And that's certainly true. They have become very good friends, but I didn't know them at the time. But they were all people from outside of the church who encountered Jesus on the Alpha weekend. And it was a remarkable group. We had a reunion 25 years later, and it was you know, amazing to see what had happened to them in those 25 years. Miles um, said that he joined that garden party, and it was incredible. Miles was there, yeah, because he was the next-door neighbor at that time. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, it was amazing to see all these people who were 25 years on, still you know, serving the Lord. So that moment when you realized that there was so much potential to use Alpha not to reach those who were non-Christians, but the non-Christians. Yeah. I imagine you must have sat down over Christmas and just really worked with it, I believe, with Charlie Mackesy as well. Charlie, yeah. Well, I don't know when Charlie came on the scene, but Charlie was probably... Was he drawing the uh, sketches for the manuals? Yeah, no, no, that, that you're right. You know more than I do. Charlie had joined the church in 1987. So I came back in 1986. I saw Charlie sitting at the back of church one Sunday. And then I think I invited him to come to our group that used to meet in our home. And that's when we started to become friends. Yes. And Charlie then did all the drawings for the materials. Yeah. And 
You mentioned January 1991, the new offer launched, and it just grew and grew and grew. Then yeah. May 1993, the first ever offer training conference. How yes. did that happen? So I was getting all these phone calls. People were ringing me up and saying, I hear you've got like 300 people on Alpha. How does it work? So I would explain, you know, this is, we do have a meal and then we do the talk, who is Jesus? And then we do small groups. And, and I was explaining it all to people. And I spent so much of my time explaining it to people. I thought, I'm going to get them all in a room at the same time. I'll explain it once and I'll never have to explain it again. So... A thousand people turned up. I explained to them about Alpha. And I thought, that's it. I've done it. But there was someone at the conference who said, would you come and do that in Scotland? And then someone said, would you come and do it in Sheffield? And then someone said, would you come and do it in Hong Kong? And so I thought, okay, I've got to do three more of these. And then that would be done. So I, we did Edinburgh and Sheffield and Hong Kong. But then someone said, well, what about, could you come to Birmingham? And then can you come to Norwich? And then can you come to Malaysia? Um, and Singapore. And then, of course, eventually it was every country in the world pretty much wanted us to do a conference there. Hong Kong, that happened in 1994, which was the following year. Was it because of this guy from HSBC who found one of your older cassettes and just brought it around? That's really how it spread, people sharing that. I, I can't remember who started it, but I do remember that first time it was the first time we visited Malaysia and we stayed with Bishop Tan Sri Savaramutu, who was the bishop in KL. And he had had a, an extension built on his house for the visit of the Archbishop of Canterbury. And we stayed in these rooms. He didn't sleep in those rooms, but we stayed in the rooms. I remember there was very strong air conditioning. It was so <laughs> cold. And then he, he would have a, a service in the morning, a morning prayer, just him and me. And and we had to sing three hymns. I can't sing at all. It was agony. Anyway, he was a wonderful man. That was our first experience of Malaysia. And then we had, I think, a day in Singapore, a couple of days in Singapore before that, and then Malaysia, and then a conference in Hong Kong. And I think in 1994, there was the Toronto Blessing as well, which really... Yes, that had happened just before that. There had been an amazing outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church. I mean, I think that's continued from 1994 till today, just in a slightly different formats. But how did it impact HTB all the way from Canada? It was an extraordinary thing. It was just really work of the Holy Spirit because everyone who prayed, come Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit came in a really powerful way. And people had seen it in Canada and then they came back and prayed in England. And then people who'd been prayed for, like I was, then went and prayed for other people and we saw the Holy Spirit coming in a powerful way, and then seemed to just spread very fast. It was really this, like a sort of revival fire that spread. Wasn't there this lady called Glenda Waddle, and she was really impacted by the Spirit? It was like on her knees, I think, and went and called Sandy, saying, Sandy, come back. This has happened. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I mean, she she was Sandy's assistant, and all of his staff were lying on the floor in the crypt. And Glenda rang Sandy to say, I just wanted to ring you to let you know that all of your staff are lying on the floor in the crypt. And so Sandy said to her, well, how did you get to the phone? She said, I crawled there. <laughs> so there's that outpouring the spirit. And how did Alpha begin to just spread and spread and spread? Just word of mouth. We were doing all these conferences and people were telling their friends and church leaders were telling other church leaders and it just spread. 
And what about Alpha Asia Pacific? How did that come about? Well, that was miles, really. It was Hong and Kathleen who wanted something in Malaysia, and they said to me they wanted Miles, who was the associate vicar at HDB, to come and head it up. And they asked me for permission to ask Miles. I said, "Of course, you can ask Miles. He's never going to say yes." <laughs> and I said, "You know, you would need the bishop in Malaysia to approve it.、Uh, you need Miles to accept." And I didn't think any of those things would happen. Anyway, Miles did say yes, and then the bishop said yes, and then the rest is history. What was the vision for Alpha Asia at the time? I, I think you know, the vision for Alpha is that as many people as possible hear the good news about Jesus. Jesus changes lives. Jesus changed my life, and Alpha is an opportunity for people to explore that in their own lives in a fun, relaxed, low-key way. And so, the vision is that as many people in Asia get the opportunity to explore faith, and hopefully find faith and be filled with the Spirit and find Jesus. I imagine COVID must have really impacted. The way that Alpha has been shared, because it's always been in person. You have meal, you、yeah. watch together, but now you—I've seen that you've gone around. You really shared, saying that let's do online church, let's do online Alpha. Yeah, well, I think this is the greatest evangelistic opportunity of my lifetime, because if you look at church history, it was during the pandemics that the church. Really grew in one six five A.D. two six one A.D. The church, the pagans ran away, and the church ran towards the need. They were hospitable. That's where the word hospital comes from. They invented hospitals, basically. And after the pandemics were over, everyone said, "Wow, these Christians are amazing!" And the church grew. And I think that's what the church should be doing right now. The other thing that's happened, of course, is digital. This is like the greatest opportunity since the printing press. Since Gutenberg and then Caxton in England invented the printing press, and everyone could get the Bible in their own language, and now with digital, everyone can hear the gospel right across the world. And amazingly, we're finding Alpha online works even better than Alpha in person. It's just so much more convenient. It's so much easier. It's an hour and a half, and you can do it from your own home. I mean, look at this. If we tried to set up this conversation, it would have taken months, and one of us would have had to fly and have jet lag and all the rest of it. But like one hour, we were just together, and it works as well. Of course, you know there is a little bit of an advantage to being in the same room, but like you're in my home, so there's hospitality involved, and it works. It really works. And the Holy Spirit comes when you pray, "Come, Holy Spirit," on Zoom. The Holy Spirit is not confused by Zoom, as I often say. It's amazing to see. So, when I told people in HDBB that I was interviewing you, one of the top questions that that came up was the fact that you have so much energy. You're doing so many things. You just launched a podcast. Where do you get that drive from? I don't know. <laughs> you know, I think the Spirit of God. There's a verse in Ephesians which Eugene Peterson translates as. The Holy Spirit gives us endless energy and boundless strength, and I think that's true. The Holy Spirit gives us energy and strength, and I want people to know about Jesus. I want people to hear the good news. I see around so much pain, addiction, fear, anxiety, people lost, broken relationships, broken families, and. I long for people to know the difference that Jesus makes in our lives to relationships. To communities, and to experience love. Everyone's looking for love, 
And that's supremely you find in a relationship with God that you're loved. Everyone's looking for purpose. And ultimately, there is no purpose beyond this life if there is no God. And once you discover that, that there is a God, then, then you find ultimate purpose. Everyone's looking to belong. So many people are lonely and they don't realize the church is this amazing community where you're not on your own. You've got all these friends and they're more than friends. They're brothers and sisters. You have this instant connection. And so I want people to experience all of that. So speaking of purpose, I normally wrap up with all of these questions. So for the first one is this, do you feel that you have found your why? I do feel I have. I, yeah, I think this is what God's called me to do. What kind of legacy would you like to leave behind? I hope my children and grandchildren will all grow up to know and follow Jesus. And my children, I'm so thrilled that all my children are amazing, you know, followers of Jesus and have married wonderful, wonderful people. And I'm, I so love my nine grandchildren. I hope they'll all follow Jesus all their lives. That's what I would love. And what do you think are the most important qualities of a successful person? I think love is what life is all about. It's just love. You can sum up everything in life with the word love. The, the whole of the Bible, the whole of New Testament, the whole of the teaching of Jesus is you are loved and love God. Jesus said, they said well, how can you sum up the whole Bible? Jesus said, well, love God, love your neighbor. That's basically it. That's what life's about. Know that you're loved, love God, and love your neighbor. That's it. And that was the end of episode 43. The share notes and transcript can be found at sothismywhy.com forward slash 43. Also a link to subscribe to this podcast weekly newsletter featuring all kinds of other inspiring and interesting things I found over the course of this week. And stay tuned for next Sunday because we'll be meeting one of Malaysia's staunchest arts and cultural advocates, best known for producing the highly successful annual Georgetown Festival, as well as the Rainforest Fringe Festival and Rainforest World Music Festival. Want to learn more? See you next Sunday.